So if you have a Bible this morning, take it to Titus chapter 3. So if you have your phone, your app, your Bible, Titus chapter 3, and we will conclude our short series in Paul's letter to Titus there on the island of Crete. So across the ages, philosophers, theologians, and college sophomores have always wondered about the good life. So men and women across civilizations, uh, religions, and other places have long considered what a life or how a life is worth living. So people have speculated that the good, worthy life is the accumulation of wealth. Is it honor, respect, or notoriety in society? The indulgence of pleasure, the escape of suffering, or the acceptance of suffering and hardship. Or perhaps it's the quality relationships with a lover, a family, or friends. It's the promotion of justice, of living with virtue, of piety in accordance with nature. And so everyone wants to live a good life, both in terms of quality of life, the, some degree of comfort, wealth, prestige, ease, and in terms of a virtuous life, moral character, dignity, value. And so the notion of the good life appeals to everyone, no matter where we are or when we live. And so we all desire to live lives that matter. We want to make the most of our time here on earth. The good life is calling to everyone, but where can it be found? Well, I can confidently say that this week, I discovered where the good life can be found. Watch this. If you want to be great, start with good. You know, like good friends, good teachers, coaches, and next-door neighborlies. Good things, good times, good games. Good game, good game, good game. Good people, good ideas, good stakes. It's good to be free. Cannonball! These are the in-between moments that make Nebraska... A door to happiness is everywhere. It's just easier to find when people hold it open. The good life is calling. So yes, the good life is calling from Nebraska. Yes, Nebraska. I don't know if I believe that except for the good stakes. But this, ad, this is the ad campaign for the Tourism uh, Commission of the state of Nebraska. But I do say it's better than the old one. Here's their previous one from ni- 2019. Nebraska, honestly... It's not for everyone. (laughs) And so I don't know which is more accurate for Nebraska. I've only been there for about 30 minutes, and I got lost in downtown Omaha in a snowstorm. Not my favorite state so far. But the good life, they say, is calling from Nebraska. But I don't know if it's calling from Nebraska or any other state in the Union. But the Bible does have a lot to say about living the good life. And the good life calls from Scripture. And so biblical wisdom always portrays the good life as one that's in balance, in good relationship with God, with other people, and with one another, no matter where we live. So it's a life modeled after the character of Christ. It's built on his death and resurrection. So throughout this short letter to Titus, Paul is unpacking what the good life looks like for individuals and for the church. It's built on the solid, sound doctrine of Scripture. It is modeled in self-controlled sobriety. It's one that seeks to please God in everything that we do. So the good life is one that is worthy of the good news that creates and informs it. So in fact, this good life is actually a new way to live. The good life is calling us to become new people. The new life is birthed out of the gospel through the work of Jesus. And no longer are we to live this life for ourselves, but for God and for other people. And so we are to not go after our passions or appetites, seeking to live the good life on our own merits, but to pour ourselves in to live for God and for others, not ourselves. So we are seeking to please Him, 
motivated by God's desires and securely fastened on the gift he gives in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us that the overflow of the good life is one that is working through the power and the origin of the triune God. He gives this life to us out of his kindness. And we are to seek his character, to promote his glory, and to await his appearance for the best life to come. So let's turn our attention now to the third chapter of Titus. So Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this to us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful He is self-condemned. And so in this powerful, compact passage, Paul sets forth a few details of what the good life looks like for the believer in Christ. He emphasizes the need to get our priorities straight as we focus on the gospel rather than meaningless controversies. And he tells us to live righteously in the world as we serve others around us. So let's look at two instructions for what it looks like to live the good life. First, our first instruction here is an insistence on good news. There is to be an insistence on good news. What is the foundation of the Christian life? What is the good news? My senior year in college, I took a class on aerodynamics, which is about as exciting as it sounds. So in each class, the the professor would look like one of those professors in a movie. He'd have like a whole chalkboard, yes, a chalkboard filled with equations and numbers and symbols And he'd go through 45 minutes of all of these things talking about flow and lift and drag and pressure. And in most classes, he would hardly look at the class. He had had his back turned, scribbling all this on the board, sometimes erasing the whole thing and starting again. Then he'd turn around with like the last five minutes and ask if there were any questions. And he was always, almost always, met with just blank stares because all of us were lost, just trying to scribble and keep up with him. And the, the professor was never very sympathetic to any of us. He would get frustrated because we didn't understand what was going on. And voicing his frustration, he would often say, you don't get it. Go back to the fundamentals. And he'd go and erase a little part and write something and then bang on the board. Everything is built on the fundamentals. All, All you have to know is Newton and Bernoulli. They're foundational. Everything else is built upon them. And he'd often say this. He says, if you want to impress your friends and family with your knowledge of aeronautics, you've got to know this stuff. 
I don't think I ever impressed my friends and family with my understanding of aerodynamics, but what he was telling us was true. Everything we discuss, as complicated as it might have been, was always based on a handful of foundational principles built on a couple key equations. Everything is based in our life on a certain set of truth. And like aerodynamics, life is often complicated. And we come through life sometimes there's kind of this blank stare, like, I don't know what to do or where to go. And when that happens, we must always go back to the fundamentals. What do we insist on? What do we build our life upon? What are the truths that we build our life around? Well, Paul says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy meaning faithful, true, reliable, verifiable. It's a phrase he uses five times in the the pastoral epistles. And often he says this is a trustworthy saying that's worthy of full acceptance. He means it is worth staking our life upon. The saying here is the totality of verses 4 through 7, which is one complete sentence in Greek. It's long, it's compound, it's jam-packed with all of this truth, but it is a summary of the most trustworthy word in in the world. It is the gospel, the fundamental and foundational truth of Christian life. So when we get overwhelmed or confused or scared or frightened and don't know what to do, go back to the foundation. Insist on what is trustworthy. Many scholars think that verses 4 through 7 was some kind of early creed or a baptismal confession. And so if you want a brief summary of what Christianity is all about, these verses are a good one to memorize. It's a trustworthy, good word. And this is why Paul says to insist on these things. Stress them, emphasize them, focus on them. Don't lose sight of them. Titus is to center his ministry around this trustworthy word. We are to build our lives on what is included here. But before he gets to verse 4, he goes to verse 3. The good life always starts with the revelation that we are not, in fact, good. Verse 3 is on the screen here. Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How would you like that to be on your resume? When you write, when you ask me or Troy to give you a letter of reference, how about we include some of these? In our behavior and thinking, we are always far away from God in our natural state. We're in conflict with other people. We're foolish, deceived, rebellious, enslaved to our animal desires. We're perpetrators. We're mean-spirited, vicious, discontented, and resentful. We're also victims, hated, deceived, and unlovable. This goes against the grain of modern thinking, doesn't it? The common idea in today's world is that everyone's naturally good. It's all the external forces. It's whatever's around us that makes us wicked or evil. Society tells us the answer is always found inside of us. Well, guess what Paul says? If you look inside of yourself, what are you going to find? These things. Today's mantra, follow your heart. When you follow your heart, what does it do? Sin. That's what it wants. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So why does Paul start the good news with this bad news? Because he wants to remind us who we were. We ourselves once were. Then he will compare that to who we are. And for us to consider how we got from there to here 
is the good news of the gospel. Because in order for it to be good news, it has to invade bad spaces. This is why verse 4 starts with a conjunction, but. And if you've ever loved a conjunction, here's a good candidate to love. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. But have you ever reflected of why God saves us? I know if you're making decisions in your life, often most of you will make kind of a pro and con list. Well, think about if God was considering, I'm going to save some people. Let's put a pro and con list up. And so let's put that up on the screen there. And so if God's going to make a pro and con list, here's what he's going to say. Okay, con, verse 3. Fools, rebellious, slaves to passions, malicious, envious, hated. Hating others. All right, pros. Pros. I can't think of anything. Well, then God comes, there's no pro for our column. There's no potential God sees in us. But he comes and he says, my love, my kindness, my mercy, my grace. Nothing in the pro column comes back to us. It all goes back to God. This is what Paul is saying here. It's God's love, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace that saves us. And so throughout all of these sentences, the main actor here is God. Verse 5, the main verb, he saved us. He's the central actor in our salvation. There's no credit due to our worth, value, or character, or potential. It all goes back to God. It's all one-sided. No works that I can do can make us righteous in God's sight. And so he sets his love on us because he chooses to. His kindness leads us to repentance. His mercy is unmerited, yet lavished on undeserving people. His grace is unearned, yet he pours out his benevolence on sinful and wayward people. This is worth reflecting on over and over and over again. It all goes back to the glory and grace and love and kindness of God. Speaking of these things, Charles Spurgeon sums it up nicely. He says this, Works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation, and the root must come before the fruit. What's the root? It's God's grace. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace, and for no other reason. That's worth considering this morning. And it's interesting here that Paul comes back to that word appeared in verse 5. It's the same word he used in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, The grace of God has appeared. Now the grace has been coupled with goodness and loving kindness. And this appearance of grace, love, and kindness is historical and verifiable because we know it comes when Jesus walks the earth and dies in our place. It's embodied in a person not some esoteric idea. It has flesh and blood. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father's love, grace, and kindness toward wayward and broken people. That's something to insist on. And notice what this salvation brings. In this compact sentence, Paul offers several aspects of the salvation that Christ has given to us. And each of these components, each of these phrases could be a sermon in itself. And be thankful we're just going to summarize them here. And we could expound these for the rest of the summer and never reach the end. But it's beneficial just to see these. Verse 5, he says that we, he saved us by the washing. This washing is cleansing of sin through the forgiveness that Christ offers. Remembering that we once were sinners, 
dirty, defiled, and God has forgiven us. This is the prayer time that we just went through to reflect on what God has done by washing away our sin, cleansing us, washing for renewal and regeneration. These terms speak to the new birth that Jesus gives us. The theologian Lady Gaga was right. We were born this way in sin, but Christ insists that we must be born another way. And he gives us new birth through his grace. As a new creation, we are regenerated. We are renewed. There's an internal and fundamental change that takes place within us. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? There at night, he's giving Nicodemus this this tutorial that you must be born again through water and and the blood, through the work of the Spirit. And this is what Jesus gives to us, washes us clean, regenerates us, and gives us a brand new way to live. We are changed and sanctified and saved continually. We're continually renewed because he has made us a new creation. The world is clamoring after regeneration and renewal. I don't know if you missed it or not, but Wednesday was a summer solstice. And the summer solstice is a pagan holiday for renewal. And so if you go online to any kind of just major news website, you would see all kinds of articles of people gathered at Stonehenge and in places out west on top of mountains to celebrate the coming of the summer solstice, the longest day of the year representing purification, a connection to nature, and a renewal of the Spirit. Our world is clamoring after cleansing and purification, and it's not found during the summer solstice. It's found only in Christ. And this is what Paul is reminding us of, the washing and regenerating and renewal power of the Spirit. He goes on in verse 7 to talk about the justification that grace brings. This is Paul's favorite word for our salvation. It's a legal term that we are now declared righteous by God's grace. Our sins have been paid for by Jesus, and we no longer bear the penalty of our sin. The Father sees us in the same way he sees Jesus, righteous and pure. And again, it's all by grace through faith. He does this, we are justified, continuing in verse 7, that we might become heirs, Justification allows us to become heirs, adopted into God's family. Rather than becoming children of the devil or his wrath, we are now children of the Father. This new birth leads to a new family and a new identity, which leads to an inheritance. That's what the word heirs represents, right? If you're an heir to something, you're going to receive here a kingdom. You're going to receive the kingdom of God alongside our elder brother, Jesus. And so this heir, this uh, inheritance is one according to the hope of eternal life, to finish off verse 7. That inheritance here is eternal, lasting life, abundant and free, life lived to the fullest, both here and forever. And it is hopeful, hopeful looking forward to the future redemption. We await the coming of Jesus, remember, from chapter 2. This is what it means to be a Christian, to put our eyes forward. Hey, we have something to inherit one day is so much more than just some get-out-of-hell-free card. Paul iterates over and over and over again how good and glorious this news is. This is only just the smallest taste of what this truths entail. But this is worth insisting on over and over again to elaborate and to unpack and to dwell and to memorize and think about. It's justification, purification, and renewal, and adoption. 
Everything changes. This is living the good life. This is the good life that God gives to us. It's important that this relationship is also in relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So you notice all three actors of the Trinity are involved here. All of them are at work in our justification and sanctification and glorification. And the ultimate beauty and goodness of this Christian life is that we have an intimate relationship with the God who created the universe and gives breath to your lungs right now. If we could be freed from the stink and filth of sin, given a new lease on life, without the ability to live with God forever, then it would not be very good. Beholding and embracing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit is the purpose of salvation, to have a fellowship with God himself. That's a life worth living right there, both now and forever. And the amount of truth contained in these four verses is enough to occupy us for all eternity. Because the, the further up and further in we go into the character and person of God, the more we come to know his love, kindness, mercy, and grace. We are doused in the love. It's poured out, he says. It's not just a little sprinkle here and there. No, it is full and overflowing to see his love, beauty, kindness, power, and glory. Can you see why Titus is to insist on these things? This is the foundational truth of life in Christ. In his grace that has appeared to wretched sinners, reconciles us. Can you see why we spend so much time on the gospels at church? We insist on the good news because it brings the good life through God's salvation. And if you don't know this good life, friend, then repent and believe. It is good news. It gives you the good life. So Paul's instruction for us here to focus and stress the fundamentals here, to go back to the starting trustworthy principles. And inherently, you know, when we focus on one thing, that means we have to ignore or neglect something else. And so when two things clamor for our attention, or if you're like me, trying to fix lunch and have three little kids clamoring for my attention yesterday, I don't think I said it once, I said it a dozen times, I can only do one thing at a time. Parents, you probably understand that. So we must choose what to focus on to give our attention to. So part of insisting on the good news is avoiding what is unnecessary. He goes on in verse 9. He says, insist on the good news, then in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So in our lives, we will often encounter people and issues that are both false and futile. And so false teaching and foolish controversies will detract us from the good news of the gospel. They will bring division to the church, Paul talks about. So our insistence on the gospel combats both false and futile teachings. So often, you can probably see where this is going, divisive issues and divisive people often go together, right? There will always be people who just love to stir up controversy, love to bring out speculative or controversial ideas. So Paul tells us that we should warn those people, try to correct them back to the truth, 
But he's saying that these interactions cannot take up all of our time. Our priority must be on the good news of the gospel that gives life rather than sucks the life out of us. And so kind of two areas here. First, we are to confront what is false. Paul tells Titus over and over again to confront the false teaching. Titus is obviously asked to confront these false teachers. And we don't know exactly what these teachers are are teaching or promoting, but we know that false teaching existed then, and we know false teaching exists now. So the church is to combat and confront what is false, whether that's legalism, some adherence to a set of rules or law, whether that's the prosperity gospel saying, oh, God's going to bless you if you just sow your seed, or combating the, just the idea of you can sin as much as you want. God's going to forgive you anyway. All those are false teachings that the church must confess or confront. And most of these are kind of pretty easily seen in our day to correct, to rebuke, and to warn against such things. We fight against those. Those are worth fighting. But other squabbles, other fights are not worth our time. That's why he says we should avoid what is futile. We can confront directly what is false, but we should just avoid what is futile. Let me kind of put these futile ideas in kind of two categories, two kind of big lumps. And so first, there's an unhelpful prioritization, an unhelpful prioritization of issues, and there can be an unhealthy preoccupation with speculation. So first, we can prioritize secondary issues. So what do I mean by that? Secondary or tertiary issues are issues that are not directly tied to the gospel. So they can be important, but what happens is we take a secondary issue and make it an ultimate issue. And we all know people, here's a good example, all know people who have their theological or sociological hobby horse or soapbox. So every time you talk to them, every time they get a chance to speak, every time you have a fellowship dinner, you know where the conversation is going to end up. Oh, no. Here comes Jerry. We're going to hear all about his views on infralapsarianism. And the fact that most of you don't know what infralapsarianism is tells you that it's not the most important ultimate doctrine. The gospel is. And so secondary issues are things like um, how we view the end times, how God's predestination works. Important? Absolutely. Ultimate? No. Uh, It can be a strict adherence to morality codes or modesty standards. It can be of the debate of how Christians are to engage in cultural issues of our day. So basically it's taking an engagement with cultural, social, or political issues and elevating them over theological issues. These topics are important, yes, but they are not ultimate. It's easy to get caught up in these little debates that can be important, but they neglect the gospel often. They distract us. They divide us a lot of times. So we can look at secondary issues, but also we can be preoccupied with speculative ideas. So these are ideas that have no definitive answer according to the Bible. Ideas can come from extra-biblical material or just kind of border on the absurd or silly. The Middle Ages had good examples of this when theologians who didn't have Netflix or uh, Instagram, they would debate all kinds of crazy stuff. And one of the most famous one was, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? And they had like volumes of stuff written about this kind of stuff. And so you see this speculative idea come through the National Geographic or Discovery channels around Christmas and Easter. You know, it's the, have you seen the gospel of so-and-so? Or have you seen the new Da Vinci or Raphael or Donatello uh, conspiracies? 
So these conspiracy theories operate in this speculative realm, this kind of just silly absurd. Uh, the Anglican Church gives us some good examples of this as well. And over the past 10 years, they have debated seriously the Anglican Church, which is the largest legislative body in the world, debated having blessings for pet funerals. They also passed resolutions against ge- uh, genetically modified foods. That is a silly thing to be for the largest church, one of the largest churches in the world, to spend their time on. It detracts and distorts and dilutes the gospel. This is why we're to avoid them. Three reasons. These issues, what is futile, what is false, distort the gospel, it dilutes the gospel, and it distracts from the gospel. So obviously false teaching distorts and twists the gospel. It leads to death, not to life. Often, most of our time, is we're looking at issues that kind of dilute the gospel. It's taking away from the cross of Christ. It's putting emphasis on some kind of social issue or cultural issue or the way the church is uh, theologically in tribes. It's basically saying when everything is the mission, nothing can be the mission. When everything is essential, nothing can be essential. So it dilutes the power of the gospel. But what hits us most hard, I think, is it distracts from the gospel. These issues can just suck the oxygen out of the room. We spend all of our time and attention on these little fringe ideas to the neglect of the gospel. I can see this um, several years ago when I had friends who'd post things on Facebook or Twitter or other places, and you're like, ooh, I've got the answer to them. You've had these debates with people online, right? How fruitful are those debates about silly and worthless things? Do you even remember what some of those were about? If someone is preaching a false gospel, we correct them. We warn them. But here he's saying, don't get involved in the foolish conversations. It's not worth your time. Because unnecessary engagement with these issues and with these people distract and lead us astray, lead us away from the gospel. It's like if I were to go into my backyard and I was thirsty, and I were to grab a shovel and start digging I'm going to dig. There's water down there somewhere. And so I make all these little holes in my yard. And all my time and attention is uh, trying to seek water inside my yard. And I'm laboriously working. It's hot. It's taking up all my time. And ultimately, it's unsatisfying because I don't find any water. What I neglected was there's a spigot in the back of the house. It's pure, running, cold water. This is what happens when we get distracted from the gospel. We neglect the fountain of living water, digging our own wells. And as elders, we often have conversations around this idea. Do we pull ourselves back to, are we focusing on the gospel? What are we doing? How are we behaving? Where's our money going to? What conversations are we having? Is it focusing on the gospel or is it preoccupied with all these little things? And we need to push and squash all these little things to focus on the gospel and to bring the right teaching the good news to the church. And so Paul says that we often can't ignore them, but we don't spend the majority of our time on them. He says that we warn once and then twice and then put them out of the way. And so we must be willing to return to the gospel, saying no to these confrontations so we can say yes to better gospel opportunities, saying no to the issues that drain life from us, and we say yes to the opportunities that give us life. And so Paul doesn't limit the good life here to what we believe, teach, or talk about. The good life isn't simply an intellectual pursuit. It is practical. 
So our focus on the good news leads us to model and live a good life before others as they watch us and see our good works. So our second point here, our second instruction, which is much briefer than the first. So first, we insist on good news. We also must seek a devotion to good works. We should be devoted to good works. So Paul extends the good life to how we behave, how we uh, work. So the root of the gospel produces fruit in the life of a believer. The fruit sprouts in our lives and in the character we display to others. At least five times in these two chapters, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Titus, Paul talks about good works and how they should be presented in the life of a believer. Look at the next slide and you'll see them here. He says, we are to be a model of good works. We are to be zealous for good works. We are to be ready for every good work. And then twice he says, we must be devoted. We must devote ourselves to good works. So these good works are expressions of humble service to others, especially those who are in desperate physical or urgent need. So when a Christian sees someone in need of food or clothing or shelter or safety or counsel, we should be able to give that as we can. So as we serve others, we demonstrate the love, kindness, and compassion of Jesus. What he has given to us in the gospel, we should give, up, give that to others as well. And the New Testament constantly reminds us of service and love to our neighbors is a primary evidence that we have been saved in the first place. So the good news comes to us so it can flow out to other people. But Paul doesn't give us the command just to do good works. He wants us to have us the right attitude in those good works. We're to be eager, zealous, ready, looking for. It means we live in tension with a deliberateness for others and not for ourselves. We should be aware of needs around us. So we don't go through life just, oh, i got to go serve somebody today. I guess I should go do some good works today. No, there's an eagerness and a desire, not begrudgingly, not half-hearted, not under compulsion, but ready for. And another way the good life manifests itself in the life of a Christian is how we act and how we interact with those we come into contact with. And so the way we serve others and the attitudes that we work from, people are going to notice those things. And so he's going to describe here the, the Christian's relationship with the public, with the wider world. In chapter 2, he talks about a relationship with the church. Now he's going to talk about our relationship in regard to a pagan society. Look back in verse 1. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So these seven commands here describe our relationship with all people, including the government. You're going, oh boy. But the overall tone I want us to see is one of humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Submission, obedience. Don't go around slandering people. Don't seek to better yourselves over the expense of others. You don't pick fights. You're kind. You're respectful. You're courteous. The only other time in the New Testament that Paul uses those words for gentle and courteous are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And he uses those. He says, I beseech you by the gentleness and, courte and courtesy of Christ. So those two words are just direct descriptions of Jesus. 
And so in all of these commands here in verses 1 and 2, the Christian is to be a model of the character of Jesus before all people, not just the people we like, not just the people who are like us, but before all people, gentle, patient, kind, courteous, not stirring up trouble, not speaking evil of our enemies, not trying to own one group or another. Does that describe the Christian church today? In America? Are Christians known for our gentleness, our kindness, our meekness, and our courtesy? Our avoidance of quarrels in the public square? I don't know if we are, but this is what Paul calls us to. In a parallel passage in 1 Timothy, Paul's talking about similar issues here. He says to the church here that they are to uh, pray for those in authority, pray for government leaders. So take these two commands. Pray for those in authority. Be submissive to those in authority. So pray for and submit to. Here's why. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you're probably very familiar with these verses. But you might have missed the connection of what's going on. So there are two desires in this passage. So God wants two things here. He wants us, first, to live a godly, quiet life in the midst of a wicked and cruel generation. We are to obey the laws and to pray for our government leaders. So first, he desires us to live quiet lives. Second, he desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So how do those two things connect? Our submission and prayer, salvation of all people. These are both God's desires. It would seem that God says our quiet lives demonstrate the gospel in such a way that brings people to salvation. Our lives commend the gospel in such a way that people are drawn to the good news and they are saved. So the gospel is displayed in the church's witness. The church saves nobody, but they bring and they reflect and they share the good news of the gospel through their quiet, peaceful, gentle, and righteous lives. God desires men and women to be saved, and he uses the witness of the church and of Christians to see people saved. The good works and good character of Christians, we model and reflect the goodness of Jesus and we are attracting people to the gospel. He says in chapter 2 that we are to adorn the gospel of Christ. We bring Christ and we display Christ to a broken and dying world. We don't pick fights. We treat others with mercy. That reveals Jesus in a powerful way. Because I don't know of anyone who has been bullied or argued into the kingdom of God. But I know a lot of people who have been persuaded by kindness to repent and believe. I don't know of anyone who's been convicted of their sin by being slandered, ridiculed, or called names. I do know others whose hearts have been turned and softened to the gospel by gentle and loving hospitality. So which do we focus on as a church? So the good news teaches us that the good life is to be found in a quiet, peaceful life, avoiding unnecessary fights in a world who hates us. We speak well of others when others ridicule us. The good news of the gospel provides the foundation for us to live righteously before a 
hostile and hedonistic world. This is why keeping the gospel is so important. This is why we insist on these things, because if we get distracted by speculative or secondary things, we lose sight of what actually brings life to others. So we cultivate spiritual fruit, serving others in humility, treating others with respect and courtesy, compassion, and empathy. So let's see how this all connects back together. And so good news, good lives, and good works all are related, right? So the good news of the gospel comes to us who were once wicked, foolish, arrogant, proud, wicked sinners. The good news comes to us to produce the good Christ life in us. He saves us. And when that good life comes to us, it overflows from us to good works. And what's happening here is that the good works are now going to commend and help spread the good news. So the good news that came to us to create a good life works in us through good works, spreading the good news to others. And that good news will go out to others to produce good life in them who will produce good works. You see the flow here? This is how it all connects. We focus on the gospel. We share the gospel. We avoid foolish controversies so we can live a good, quiet life representing God to the world through our works, which spreads and carries the gospel. And that gospel changes people. It brings them into the good life. So the good news calls people to a good and godly life. It's not calling from Nebraska, but it may be calling you to go to Nebraska. It may be calling you to go to any number of places to take your good works to Nebraska or Nepal or North Chattanooga to use your good works and tell others the good news that leads to the good life that flows from it. So wherever we may be, whatever we are called to do, we build our good lives, our godly lives, not on our own basis, but on God's grace knowing the good news that's come to us, we work for the good of others, zealously devoting to serve them that they might be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So go and live the good life. Let's pray.